This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this gathering of your people and friends who are visiting to find out about you. Father, we thank you for our brothers and our sister who have joined us as members of this local church today. And we pray, God, that as we open up your word this moment, that God, your spirit will help us to wrestle with your word, to understand your word, and so to respond rightly to you. All this we pray for your glory and that of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Christmas is just over. Now I want to ask this question. When you hear the name Jesus or the title Christ, what is the first picture that comes to your mind? For some Christians, it's always the cross. For others, it might be the gentle man holding a lamb or children surrounding him. Still, since we have just celebrated Christmas, many sees him as the baby in the manger. But this afternoon, as we gather today, uh, post-Christmas and the last day of the year, I want to invite you to look uh, into today's passage, which will bring us forward to a picture of what Jesus is really like now, this moment, and forevermore. The image is from the baby Jesus Christ to one who is mighty, who has great power and will bring great judgment on the final day. So whether it is professing Christians or non-Christians, He will come and He will be what we read today. It may not happen on the last day of 2017. We may still enjoy our dinner, but He will come on the last day of you and my life or as the whole world ends, which can happen any time. In fact, right at the beginning of Revelation 1, we read the intention of this letter. Let me read this for us. It says, Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Even as we come to the end of 2017, we are invited today to catch a glimpse of what is now and what will soon take place, uh, as verse 19 tells us, in order that we may journey the days and the week and the year ahead in 2018 with greater clarity of how we should live your life and my life. So let us begin by just taking note of four introductory words for this letter commonly um, called Revelation. I just want to point out four words for us. The first word is Revelation in verse 1. That is, this is about the revealing of what might soon take place, which is really the coming back of Jesus Christ. Revelation. Second, it is a testimony. Crucially, it talks about Jesus Christ. It tells us more about Him and prepares us to see Him, though we will never be fully prepared. And it is a prophecy, verse 3, right away. It tells us, meaning that it is a message that requires listening and responding. It is a prophecy. And this passage comes in the form of a letter, which is in verse 4, written by the apostle of Jesus called John to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia 2,000 years back. Um, but it is also for us 
So if you kind of rephrase um, these four uh, points, I'll, I'll use it in, um, to explain it in four questions. I'll just repeat it, but that's where it's heading for. What is this whole letter about? It is about revealing that Jesus Christ is returning. And you ask, who is it about? It is about Jesus Christ. Why is it given to us? That we may listen and that we may be able to respond. And how is it given? It's in the form of a letter which we have right in our hands and in your bulletin. Now I just want to make it even clearer at this point that although this letter was written by this man called John, it is actually really a letter written by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to the readers, including you and me. It is the Lord himself writing it to us, to the seven churches and for us who listens. So as we journey through this first chapter of Revelation, I will just want to help us consider three things today. Three things in this first chapter. The first is the testimony of Jesus Christ. We'll come and look at Him. The testimony of Jesus Christ. The second thing that comes in is the message to Christians. Even if you're not a Christian, there is a message for you as well. And finally, the response to Christ. So three things, the testimony to Christ, the message to Christians, the response to Christ. So as you come to this first letter of Revelation, it is, first of all, this great news about Jesus Christ, who He is, what He has done, and what He will do in the future. We'll see very little about that baby Jesus that we have just looked at just seven days back. But rather, we peer behind the curtain to really see who He is. There are many things about Jesus in just this first chapter, but let us follow John, first of all, to get a helicopter view of the testimony of Jesus Christ. In fact, look at verse 5 with me as I read it for us. He says this, This is from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. So right at the very beginning, John invites us to consider carefully who is the one that stands behind the message of this letter you hold. And he is Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. What happens in history is that the life of Jesus has accomplished all that the Old Testament has written about, that God has given. They're sealed with ink for millenniums, recorded in scriptures. So on one hand, scripture testifies that Jesus is the Christ as he lives out. But on another hand, Jesus Christ becomes a faithful witness to God who has said everything. Because God made the promises, Jesus fulfills it. And by fulfilling what God has said for millenniums, He became the faithful witness of God. Now the question we may ask is, what did God promise us that He came to fulfill? And the answer is, God offers us ability to overcome death. And so we read at the same verse again, he says, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn here really means the first among the many to come. Because he died a physical death, many more will come raised from the dead. I don't know how many of you are kind of sports people, but perhaps you have read this before. In, in sports history, there's this term called the four-minute mile. Has anyone heard of the four-minute mile? 
just before just 60 years before now or just a bit earlier before 1954 there is this invisible barrier that is known as the four minute mile humanity we believe that a human can't really run one mile in four minutes so any previous records that a person can do it is kind of um, responded with skepticism that can you really run one mile in four minutes until 6 of May 1954, an English man by the name Roger Bannister, he broke that four-minute barrier at Oxford University in one of the races in Ifley Road Track. And when that historical moment happened, just weeks after, other men started to break the four-minute barrier because he came and suddenly he realized that is possible. And since then, 60 years since then, that the four-minute barrier became the standard of all male professional middle distance runners. Roger Bannister was the first of many to come. And Jesus, he was the firstborn from the day he was the first of many to come in that final day. Well, the, the example, the analogy of Roger breaks down at this point because there is a big difference between Roger Bannister and Jesus Christ. Because on the four-minute mile, Roger proved, he did prove the possibility of running uh, that speed. But the runners have to achieve it by their own strength. But Jesus, on raising himself from the dead, he revealed the certainty that resurrection is possible. And he does the impossible work on our behalf and offers it to us because we can't do that. And with his resurrection... Look at the verse that I invited you to look. He becomes the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now here's the age-old question that movies have run through again and again. And the question is, who can be the greatest man? Who can be the greatest king in this world? Who can have power over others? Who can rule the earth? And here is the real answer. It's not the one who is most Ruthless is not the one with the greatest army. Is not the one who has the loudest voice. Is not the one with the longest distance missiles. The one who has that power to be the greatest king is the one who can outlive all the others. The one who cannot die. And the one who holds death in his hands. And when Jesus rose from the dead, John recorded the truth that he is now the ruler of the kings of the earth. Dear friends, we thought of Jesus as the baby of, baby of Christmas in the past, but today, as we look at Revelation, we're invited to look at him for who he really is today. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the rulers of the kings of the earth. Well, there's only about half a verse of Revelation one, we could well spend the whole afternoon just looking at Jesus in greater depth. And we'll look at it briefly or a bit more later. But, but for now, we're invited by John to turn our eyes from who he is to what he has accomplished. So look at verse 5b and 6 with me. If you have your bulletin, it's right there. If not, it's in the screen. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. 
Dear friends, brothers, sisters, here's the question. Why does Jesus come? He pans down his life with blood for our sake. The answer is this. That God the Father and Jesus Christ loves us. That's the only reason why he comes. He loves us and comes with the purpose of freeing us by his blood. Because here is our problem. This is your problem. This is my problem. We are short-lived human beings. You and I, we live a short life. And when we reject God and we rebel against God, nature tells you and tells me that that is a capital punishment. From the day we are born, the day we have become a consumer of breathing air, we know that death is at the end of our journey. Nature shows us that since our separation from the giver and the source of life in us, that we are not source of life, that we run out. And this is compounded with God's rightful judgment. If He is there for all the evil we have done, you and me committed against Him, and all our abuses of people around us, whether it is by our envy, our jealousy, our lust, our anger, our greed, our slander, our spoken words, our unspoken thoughts, our visible actions, our invisible desires, our abuse of others. The rightful judgment is compounded on our inability to stay alive long enough. But Christ loves you, Christ loves me, and He offers us to be free from our sins by taking it on himself, by dying. And not only so, look at it, he is willing to draw us back to himself, to be part of the eternal kingdom that he has, and to serve God once again. And what Jesus did out of love for us is like air. The air that we need to breathe, to keep alive. Because one day, it will make all the difference whether we are in Jesus Christ or we are not. Look at verse 7. Because the day will come where he says, Look, he is coming with the clouds. On that day, everyone will see Jesus for who he really is. We cannot see Jesus Christ right now with our eyes, but we will see him physically. Those who mocked him, if you look on from verse 7 onwards, those who mocked him, who put nails in his hands and his feet, they will see a very different Jesus to the one they mocked and hung on that piece of wood. On that day, everyone will mourn, will cry, because what we truly look like on our inside will be exposed for everyone to see. And that will be a frightening picture of shame and of nakedness. When the world sees us, not how we look and how we gel our hair and how we dress, but everything in us is turned from inside out. And on that day, it will happen and Christ comes back and judge. So remember the testimony about Jesus Christ, who He is, what He has done, what He will do next. We come to the message to Christians. Now we, we might ask this, how does the knowledge of Jesus, who He is, what He's done, how He'll return, make any difference to our life today? 
to how we live our life. And the answer John would tell us is, it makes every single bit of difference. Every single bit of our life. It makes a difference. The knowledge of Jesus Christ is crucially important for you and me as we decide how we spend our time and resources, how we respond to challenges, oppositions, how we behave towards the world and behave towards others. I don't know if you've heard this. We've heard it said that life is like a journey. Have you heard of that? Life is like a journey. But today I want to bring to you three major views of how this life of journey actually looks like. I'll give you just three major ones. You can think with me. The first one is this, that life is a random case of meaningless journey. If you're an atheist, you will have to concur with me on this point, that you and I, we are really random molecules with no objective purpose and meaning. We are the cause of random occurrence. There's no God, there's no creator, and there's no created purpose. Why would an atheist bother to create a life purpose, argue with someone else because someone has a view? Why does an atheist get upset about people's moral view about um, having hobbies or doing things that have no intrinsic value except to enjoy it? It is beyond my imagination because for an atheist, if you're for you, life is a randomness of meaninglessness. Actually, all these things don't matter. But that is one way to think about life journey. For a true atheist, the beginning of life and the end of life, it makes nothing. It makes no difference. In a million years from now, in a thousand years from now, there's no meaning. Life journey, one of this, is that it is a journey of meaninglessness and randomness. Well, there's a second view. This is a major view. Second view is life is a, uh, is a cyclical journey. See, I can't mouth it up. It's a cyclical, eh? how do you pronounce it? Cyclical, cyclical journey. There you go. I always get my tongue tied on this word. You know, if you're someone who's, who's religious, but you don't believe in one God, meaning you're not monotheistic, person. You believe there are plenty of gods. You believe life is kind of in circle unless you you get out of it. Then this is one of the views of life. People have it this way that one's life today is the result of how they've lived the previous life. And how they live today will just stack up to the next phase of life. They'll be like your calendar today as your 31st of December ends. You tear it off and oh wow, 1st of January again. So you go on and on and on next year, 31st. And you just go on until one fine day you get out of that calendar or you get out of that cycle of life. If that is the view of life for you, then you will be someone who lives and believes in reincarnation. You just go on and on and on. So that is the second view of life. But if you're someone who believes there is one objective God, there is one objective truth, as Christians believe, then life is not meaningless, neither does it go in circles, because life is actually a linear journey. I want you to think with me for a while of life. There is a beginning, there's an end. How we live, react, respond, behave in life, it matters 
because at the end, the created God will come and judge everything once and for all. The Apostle Paul knew about this. He wrote this letter. He knew there's one God, that life is linear in history. We have only this one life. We begin with God giving us breath. We end when we use it up and we face God. John knew that Jesus Christ came into our history at one point. He came, he kept God's promise, he died, he rose again, he gave us an offer while we can still grab it. But he will come back again. And because John believed all of this and he saw life as how it is, this is what he says to the readers of his letter, to the seven churches and to us. Look at verse 9 with me. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Now here's a very real picture of John's life, the life of the seven churches, and can we say the life of yours and mine? Because life is linear. For Christians, there is a real suffering when our life begins as Christians, and we identify with Christ, and life as a Christian will involve suffering. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. If you're a Christian, there is suffering, but there is an end point. Christians will be in Jesus' eternal kingdom. And from now to the end, there's a call for us to have patient endurance. I just want to invite you to think with me these three things for a moment. Suffering, kingdom, and patient endurance. Let's consider, let's think about John first and then we pull it forward to ourselves. Look at John. John John is a close disciple of Jesus. He knew Jesus. But this time, as you write this letter, he's an old man. He is clear about life. He knows his life purpose. There are three things about his life. He knew his purpose is to testify about Jesus, and that comes with suffering. He knew he needed to persevere in his faith, which requires patient endurance. He knew that he will finish his journey where he will finally receive his reward in the kingdom. And now John, as he writes this, is on this island of Patmos. I'm not sure if he was there willingly or by force, but we are told that he was there because of the message about Jesus. Well, perhaps John went there to share the gospel, but more likely, if you are familiar with with the background, he's more likely to have been put there uh, as a punishment and to suffer for who he is. Because Patmos is a really small and isolated place. How big is Singapore? Anyone knows? In kilometer square? You know how big is Singapore, Singaporeans? We're about 720 kilometers square. Okay? Patmos is 45. And today, it is a, it's a grand place. Christians like to do pilgrimage there because that's where John is. The population today, 9,000. 2,000 years ago, who knows? It is not a fancy place. It's an island that nobody would go by nature. 
and Paul and John was there. In fact, perhaps there wasn't even much many Christians around. No Christians, even in the Lord's day in, in John's time, they would gather, they would celebrate. Now as you read this letter, John was there alone on, on the Lord's day, though he was not alone. He wasn't anti-social, he was not lazy, but there are not that many people that he can gather with. John knew suffering all his life. He knew that kingdom is awaiting for him and he needs to have patient endurance right now. And so as he writes to the seven churches in verse 11, those seven churches, if you read on your own in chapter 2 or join the next membership class, you quickly realize that these seven churches face many, many sufferings. Whether it's external persecution, imprisonment, or even death, whether it's internal false teachers, sin, whether it's temptations to compromise in life or giving in to the ways of the world, there is real struggle, there's real challenge, and there's real suffering for the seven churches that were reading this. So John wrote to them in order they may recognize that suffering is part of the deal as a Christian. If you didn't hear when you become a Christian, now let me put it out to you. It's part of the deal of being Christian. The heavenly kingdom is also part of the deal for those who are waiting for Him. And between now and that future, there's this crucial need for patient endurance. Now the sufferings and call for patient endurance obviously doesn't apply just to John and seven churches. It applies to, to us. Just think of your own life for a moment, for you and me, because, because life is not a child's play as a Christian. We face challenges and temptation and trials as we face Satan, we face the ways of the world, we face our own sinful desires. We'll come back to this in greater detail next week, but here is John's point. Suffering now plus the confidence in the future kingdom enables us to have patient endurance today because Christianity or Christian life is not a passive religion, it's not a part-time identity. It demands full engagement because it is a linear journey that we make. We make decisions and we make choices and we reach the end. In the meantime, all kinds of currents and lures can stop us from moving forward. And the strength is gained by recognizing who Jesus is now and remembering the kingdom. So here's the question. I, I've just put it up there for us. Do we want to have the power to endure bravely and patiently throughout our Christian life, throughout suffering, throughout persecution, whether we face ridicules, oppositions, threats from the world, from our own family, from our friends, or when we struggle and fight temptations, and sin within us when we hear accusation. Have you felt accused before? By Satan who says, you're not worthy, just forget it. Or when we consider giving up our identity as a Christian or to compromise what we know is right and true, but we just give in and find excuses. Do we want to have the power to keep going and bravely endure through all of this? If we want to, here's the formula John has. Uh, for the, all Christians. This is formula. His formula is this. Remember who is Jesus Christ and the eternal kingdom that he has promised to include us. I don't know if the word formula is the best word, but that is really his point. 
that while you're going through, look at the kingdom and look at the king. And if you read Revelation, you realize the king is never described as the weak one anymore. He's the one we need to look at to realize his kingdom will surely come. Do we recall what we just read earlier on in verse 5? To remember Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And how he held on to his promise of eternal kingdom, as John says, me and you, we are companion of this suffering, we are companion for the kingdom, and now we are companion in this patient endurance. So that is what Paul, uh, John has for us. In fact, listen to what comes next. Because even though John might be alone on Sunday, he was really never alone. Rather, he had given, he was given this heavenly vision of the Lord Jesus himself. Let me read this vision for us from verse 11 onwards. You can look at it with me. Write on a scroll what you will see, what you see, and send it to the seven churches. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His right hand, he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Here's the vision of how the Lord Jesus Christ looked like that would strengthen, if not frighten John, to keep going on and finish his race into the kingdom of heaven. Look at it, eyes blazing like fire, feet bronze glowing furnace, it's hot, voice like rushing waters, his hand holding seven stars. Man, how big must the Son of Man be to have a hand that holds seven stars? And you see as he opens his mouth, you don't see a tongue, you see a sharp double-edged sword, you don't even, I wonder, how do you even see his face? His face is glowing like the sun. But now we really have moved from that baby Jesus, meek and mild, that you hear on Sunday that invites you to someone who looks like that now and what is to come. The one who has promised the kingdom, he will come. Now, before we try to understand what does this whole description of this Jesus mean, I want to give us some help to understand when we read maybe a letter like Revelation, how to kind of work through some of these symbols. I want to say first of all that the speaker or your pastors, we don't have secret formulas that we have a vision at night and we kind of interpret for you whatever way, but rather I'll say that if someone looks at Revelation and explains it to you and you kind of find it's interesting, weird, but you cannot verify I'll say that be careful of that because surely this letter that John, as he writes and he distributes to seven churches, he doesn't expect them to have seven interpretations coming back. Say, ah, I think it's this, I think it's this, I think. What do we discuss? I think when he sent out the letter, he expects them to understand what he's talking about. And so here are a few things. As you look at a letter like, like Revelation, I want to point out for you. First of all, it is really a word picture. Revelation has plenty of pictures. It's a word picture book. It's like a picture book. There's more pictures than descriptions of things. And secondly, 
no, John did not create this pain and he just splashed it out whatever he wants. The pain that he uses is from the Old Testament, from something that people... From the, the pain itself that he used to paint the canvas are things that people can identify with, which is the scriptures. Perhaps at some point, the, 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 the environment that the Romans were in. And the third thing, that if it is something that is new, that Jesus in the Revelation will explain himself. And so as we look at this, I want to look at it briefly with us, what it means in this description of Jesus. is It's always worth asking when a description comes out, is to think, have I heard this before somewhere? Because there are chances that you will have. There are chances that you have found them familiar in the earlier parts of scriptures. So now as you look at it, let me look and bring us to verse 13. Because it's full of Old Testament meanings. The rope reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. In this verse 13, it is really, if you look at Old Testament, it is a description of the way priests or the kingly or royalty dress. And that's what is pointing about Jesus. And if you look at verse 14, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were blazing like blazing fire. Um, if you read this, you'll find, ah, have I looked at it somewhere? And in Daniel 7, that is a similar picture that is used to describe God. It's not meant to be a horror movie. Uh, this guy looks a bit weird. But the reader who reads it and says, this looks like the one that we read from long ago in Daniel 7. And he speaks about, and John speaks about, this son of man coming like in clouds, arriving. What is this son of man? And if you're already thinking about Daniel 7, when you think about the man with white hair and, and, and wisdom and power, let me read to you Daniel 7 as he speaks about this son of man coming with clouds of heaven. Daniel 7, verse 13. In my vision, this is Daniel's vision, hundreds of years before this. In my vision on that night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and people of every tongues, every language, worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. As we follow John's description of what he saw, as readers, we are meant to recognize not a horror picture of some scary person, but the great priest king who is mighty, who has authority, who has power, who has glory, who has sovereignty over everything, and whose kingdom rules above all the other kings. And that is the picture of the king and his kingdom that we are meant to hold as Christians go through suffering, that they are able to endure patiently because they don't just see a baby Jesus make a mouth, they don't just see a Jesus on the cross, they see the one who rules like God and the one who will come and reveals everything. And the one whose eyes can be fixed on him will be able to persevere on patiently, knowing what is ahead. And this is the Jesus Christ, no longer the man who suffered under the hands of his own creation. In fact, Jesus, when he was on earth, 
He knew exactly of this, even though people look at him just as men. I just want to read to you what Jesus said about himself while he was a man with his disciples about his own death. Let me read to you what he says. It was also recorded by John, much younger than John 10, 17, 18. No one takes it, meaning his life, from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus, when he was a man, he says this, I don't just lose my life. I put it down for you guys. I will pick it up again. And here, back in Revelation, everything has passed. He has picked it up. The next time he comes back, you will not be that man on the cross. Dear friends, Jesus is no longer the Christmas baby. He's no longer there on the cross. When he returns, all knees will bow. All fears will come. In fact, John himself responded this way. And that's where we come to verse 17. Look at verse 17. Let's look at the response to Christ. So John, when I, John said this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now, look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. As John saw the vision of Jesus, he knew only one response, and it was to fall at the feet of Jesus as if dead. John is the one who saw Jesus for three and a half years. If anyone knew Jesus well, it would have been John. The one who lived with him, ate with him, slept next to him, you know, done everything with him, were taught by him. But when John saw Jesus this time in his glory, he fell down. He did not come and say, Hey buddy, I've been waiting for you. John didn't say, Hey, can I now sit at the right hand of your throne? The only thing John did was he fell down as though dead, but that is rightly so. Because when he sees the Jesus that comes back and he falls down, the only thing that can make John stay alive is when the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is willing to put his hand on him and forgive him. And listen to what Jesus says to him. Jesus said, and I think these are the words that you and I would desperately need to hear on the last day. He said, Do not be afraid. You know what, friends? Our linear life from beginning to end, it all boils down to this point in history when Jesus comes back and where we see him for who he is and we have no choice whether we like to shake our feet or we'll do whatever, we all bow down. And what he says on that moment determines everything else. Everything in the past makes no Difference has no value. Our whole life boils down to that point where we finally see Him and we fall at His feet and what He says and what comes out from His mouth. Whether it is, do not be afraid or I'm here to judge. And so Jesus affirms for John who had trusted in Him 
and waited patiently. And as you look in, look on what he described himself, it's back to verse 5 that we have looked at just now. But Jesus used it in just different words. Who is he? The first and last. What he has done? He's the living one. He was dead. Now he's alive forevermore. And what he will do? I hold the keys of death and Hades. Because Jesus will be the one who will judge the living, the dead, the men, the women, the young, the old, the professing Christians, the non-professing ones, those who obey the gospel, those who reject the gospel. Because He holds the key to our very lives or our very deaths. You know, life is a linear case of beginning and end. As 31, 31st December ends here as we flip our calendar. It's not just another cycle. It's another day closer to His return. We can think, let's start a New Year resolution. But it's never a new because we are still moving forward day by day. Revelation 2 and the rest of the letter will call us to have patient endurance. It will have even more, much more description of Jesus. We have just started, but we'll not be going there today. But as we conclude, my dear friends, brothers and sisters, let me just bring in the, con- the implication for you and me as we round up the end of the year. If you're not yet a Christian, you're kind of thinking, I pray that you can catch a glimpse of Jesus, not just the one on the, on the holidays, on the Christmas you know, nativity scene, but the one who really is who He is from the very beginning. I pray that we will catch a glimpse, if you're not yet a Christian, to think about it, to consider it, because it, if it's a fearful sight for someone like John, who have known Jesus and have lived for Jesus all his life, I don't know how it will be for you and for me, because we will see Him and we will respond like John, if not more. So I pray that this will be a good time that we'll consider Jesus, whether it will be one who sees him and we still hold on to a promise of forgiveness of sin, trembling but holding on to a promise, or we hold on to nothing when he comes. But if you're a Christian, then here it is for us today. Remember who Jesus is Catch his vision. If you forget, come back to Revelation. Catch who he is and the eternal kingdom he has promised and he will usher in so that in times of suffering, we know how to handle it. That as we suffer from being identified as a Christian, our families, colleagues, our neighbors, as we suffer for resisting the devil, the world, our own sinful temptation and desires, as we suffer from trials when we acknowledge Jesus instead of being ashamed of him, among others, as we stand firm in in faith, instead of compromising our lives, as we stand suffering, bearing the burdens of other Christians because they are our brothers and sisters, as we stand suffering for all kinds of things, that we look and see the King. We look and know the Kingdom will come and that we will have patient endurance till we return. So brothers and sisters, friends, I pray that as this last day of 2017 kind of ends together, we'll finish this last day together, but more so we will finish the last day of life's journey together and we will face Him with thanksgiving that we have held on to Him and that we have never let go. Let me just pray for us as we close.
Father, we thank you for John's letter to the seven churches and is kept for us. Father, we thank you that he gave us the description of Jesus, not just how he really looks like, but who he really is. That we may stand firm and hold strong. That even the weakest physically, emotionally among Christians have the strength to stand firm and endure because we know what is to come and who is in charge. Or for us, someone who's seeking and just thinking aloud about Christianity, Father, we pray you help us to investigate every time we breathe through our nostril, as we breathe it out, we know there's one day that when we breathe it out, we'll not breathe in again. But before that day comes, Father, we pray you help us to examine whether what you say in these words is true or not. Because if it's not true, we live our lives the way we want. But if it's true, we should be afraid. So Father, we pray, because you love those you have created, all of us, and you want us to know you, we pray, God, that your Holy Spirit will work in our lives, that we may come to grow and know you and to love you in 2018. Pray all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.